Hi, I'm Rebecca Onion, a staff writer at Slate. Back in 2015, I co-hosted this podcast with my colleague Jamel Bowie as we explored the history of American slavery. This year, as we commemorate the 400 years since the beginning of American slavery in 1619, we're re-releasing this nine-part series to the public. To learn more about the series and to support more of this work at Slate, please visit slate.com academy. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of the History of American Slavery, a Slate Academy. My name is Jamel Bowie. I am a Slate staff writer. And I'm Rebecca Onion, and Slate's history writer. In each episode of this series, we are looking at a different chapter in the history of slavery in America and starting the conversation with the life of a single person. This episode, that person is Charles DeLond. On January 8th, 1811, on a plantation northeast of New Orleans, on Louisiana's German coast, a group of conspirators began the largest slave revolt in United States history. One of its leaders was Charles DeLond, who, historians believe, was born around 1787, possibly on the island of Saint-Domingue. As a young person, he might have witnessed the successful revolution of Saint-Domingue's enslaved population that culminated in the founding of the Republic of Haiti in 1804. That revolution caused thousands of people to flee Saint-Domingue. Both slaveholders and enslaved people carried off in bondage. Many of them landed in Louisiana, where Charles Deland worked as an enslaved overseer on a plantation owned by Manuel Andre. He was a commandeur in charge of driving groups of enslaved laborers to cut and refine sugarcane. People in similar positions in Haiti were the leaders of the rebellion there, and Deland and his co-conspirators may have known about their tactics and organization when they planned their own revolt. About 15 men began the rebellion by killing the plantation owner's son. They planned to march 30 miles to New Orleans, take the city, and orchestrate a larger revolt from there, making it the capital of the resistance. As Deland and his rebels marched toward the city, they burned plantations and recruited more slaves. They killed another white man on their way. Soon, outraged plantation owners had raised a militia, and they trapped the rebels against a force of American soldiers marching from New Orleans. The rebellion came to a swift end. Between 200 and 500 slaves had joined the fight. 95 of them were executed. Charles Deland was captured and met a bloody end after a speedy judgment rendered by a group of white landowners. Deland, wrote one witness, had his hands chopped off, then shot in one thigh and then in the other until they were both broken, then shot in the body, and before he expired, was put in a bundle of straw and roasted. Others involved in the rebellion were hanged, then beheaded, and their heads were placed along the levee as a warning to others. On today's installment of the History of American Slavery, we're going to talk about the specter of slave revolts and the impact they had on the institution of slavery in the early years of the 19th century. We'll consider the German Coast Rebellion, which Delon was one of the leaders of, and then we're going to talk about a situation in Mississippi in the 1830s in which slaveholders convinced themselves that a revolt was brewing and initiated a purge that had bloody consequences for um, many enslaved people in the area. But first, I wanted to try to step back and talk about some of the context of this time. So the German Coast Rebellion is in 1811. So what's sort of going on historically around this time that we should be thinking about, Jamel? 
Well, in the preceding 20 years, um, a whole host of of events have happened, basically. You have the patent of the cotton gin in 1793, which, um, as, as I think we all learned in our middle school American history classes, really does change the shape of the slave economy, it makes um, specifically cotton cultivation much more profitable, um, and thus helps sort of generate the expansion of slavery, not just on the coastal South, but throughout the South, um, into yeah. you know what we'll later discuss as the Southern frontier. In 1807, uh, as we discussed in episode two, there's the abolition of the international slave trade, at least by Great Britain. And in the U.S. Constitution, we, we were getting to the point where the United States is, is banned from engaging in the international slave trade as well. And so the the slave trade in, in, the, in the United States in particular is moving from uh, international to pretty much a domestic trade in slaves. Yeah. And then in 1803, we have the Louisiana Purchase, um, which doubled the size of the United States and, again, opened up a ton of new land to slavery and also arguably began the long process of sort of political conflict over slavery because all of a sudden the potential for vast expansion of slavery is now a live issue, a live question. Right. So since the time that we were looking at in the last episode, you know, in the late 18th century, where there's like a sort of more of a settled, well, relatively settled plantation economy in the old upper south. Now there's all of this sort of possibility on a number of different levels. There's a, you know, much more land, there's much more possibility to make cotton and make money. um, And people are very aware of the fact that slavery is tied up in that. That's right. And again, that, that new awareness, um, that new expansion, the fact that slavery after a decade, the 1790s, when it looked to a lot of observers that like the like institution would be, if not dying, then just gradually petering out. Yeah. Um, that didn't happen. 18, yeah. That didn't happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> the 1800s kind of provides a jolt to the institution itself. And that jolt uh, simultaneously uh, begins to kind of generate anti-slavery activity once everyone kind of realizes Mm -hmm. that this is going to be with us possibly for the duration. Right. So there's all this sort of broader context going on, but I think the historical event that's sort of the most directly related to the Charles Salon story is the revolution in Saint-Domingue in the Caribbean, which is the place that we now know is Haiti. And so when we come back from the break, we're going to talk to Ed Baptist, who's a historian at Cornell whose book, The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism, is where both Jamel and I first heard about Charles DeLonde. Looking forward to episode six of the Academy? You can prepare by reading ahead. Rebecca and Jamel will talk to Dinah Ramey Berry about how the ascendancy of the cotton crop fueled the spread of America's internal slave trade. Find an excerpt from Dinah's book, The Chattel Principle, in our show notes or at slate.com slash academy. Hey there, and welcome back to episode five of the History of American Slavery, a Slate Academy. I'm Jamel Bowie. And I'm Rebecca Onion. In the first part of the show, we sketched the outlines of the German Coast Rebellion of 1811. Jamel and I had the opportunity to hear a little more about the story from the author of one of the most acclaimed recent books on slavery. That book is The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism, and its author is Cornell historian Ed Baptist. Here's Ed. 
I think the first thing to understand about the uh, 1811 rebellion in Louisiana is that uh, Louisiana would not have even been part of the United States without the success of the Haitian Revolution. In uh, 1791, Saint-Domingue, this French colony, is the, the most prosperous sugar uh, plantation society in, in the world. And some people would argue it was the most profitable piece of uh, real estate uh, on the planet Earth in 1791. The western third of the island of Hispaniola, about 450,000 enslaved Africans were there and only about 40 or 50,000 whites, uh, about 20 to 40,000 uh, free people of color there. And this society, which was so uh, prosperous for whites uh, and so important to the French economy as well, was overthrown really in, in the course of the work of one night in August 1791, when thousands of enslaved Africans on the northern plain of what is today Haiti, Saint-Domingue, uh, rose up and started to torch uh, the, the plantations and uh, eventually gathered together and marched on the colonial capital. And what follows after that is a, about a 13 or 14 year process in which uh, the rebels uh, surge back and forth across the island. Various European powers try to defeat them, try to subdue them. Uh, they end up defeating both the British army uh, and a series of French armies, including dealing Napoleon Bonaparte's armies, their, their first real defeat. And it's at that point that Napoleon, who had hoped to expand and expand the investment of France, in fact, in their uh, North American possessions. Uh, that's that's the point where he gives up on his dreams of an American empire, which would have included, it seems today, uh, Louisiana. But not just Louisiana, the state, uh, but Louisiana, the much broader territory, which included the whole western half of the Mississippi Valley. So in 1804, because he's been defeated in his attempt to suppress the Haitian Revolution and Haiti has become an independent country, it's at that point that he decides to sell uh, the colony to, um, it's actually 1803 when he decides it. It's in 1803 when he decides to sell not just uh, Louisiana, but the whole uh, western drainage uh, area of the Mississippi Valley to Thomas Jefferson in the United States. And, you know, another thing that has happened in the course of um, uh, this whole process from 1791 to 1804, uh, when Louisiana actually becomes a U.S. territory, another thing that's happened as part of that process is that large numbers of whites from Saint-Domingue who had been slave owners there have come to Louisiana, to New Orleans, uh, and they brought ideas, they brought assumptions, and they've also brought enslaved Africans, uh, including, it appears from the records, uh, a very young man named Charles DeLond. Uh, whether he remembered the revolution in 1791, the, the start of it or not, he was certainly among people who did remember it uh, and had in some cases been present for the, the launching of it. So what Professor Baptist is describing essentially is a migration of former slaveholders and survivors of the Haitian Revolution to the United States. And, and they bring with them um, basically raw fear. Uh, they tell their peers, they tell the new people they meet, listen, this is what happened not far from here in circumstances not unlike these. And you should keep your business on lock because look what happened <laughs> down in Haiti. Look what happened to us. Right. And one of my um, sort of biggest questions about it is what people who were enslaved actually knew about Haiti, because there's like the fear that they knew something, and then there's the actual knowing. And we asked Ed about this, whether we, looking back into history, 
can tell what kind of information was actually circulating among people who were enslaved in the U.S. about Haiti. Enslaved people, um, formerly enslaved people uh, who often had relatives uh, who were enslaved, these folks make up the crews of many of the merchant vessels that travel around the Caribbean and around the Atlantic, in fact. And so they're bringing the news. You know, you can tell them you can't learn to read. You can confiscate pamphlets that they carry. You know, you can try to lock them up when you come into port, but news is going to find its way out. And that, that clearly happened around all the ports of the Atlantic world. But we don't have so much direct evidence that it happened. Most of the evidence that we have is, is the constant um, fear uh, that enslavers are talking about, and their constant attempts to suppress the news of what had happened uh, and punish those who you know, are, are carrying that. Particularly, uh, you see this when they're carrying pamphlets and, and uh, documents like that. But maybe the best evidence, uh, I would argue, that, that uh, word of this got out is the very obvious fact that in 1811, you had large numbers of enslaved people in Louisiana who had been in Saint-Domingue or had parents who had been in Saint-Domingue or knew people who had been in Saint-Domingue and who then participated in a rebellion that in a lot of ways replicated the strategy of the 1791 rebels. So the effort to suppress news of the Haitian rebellion uh, isn't just out of a vague sense that we don't want, you know, we don't want enslaved people to know that there is a successful slave rebellion. Um, in Louisiana in particular, it owed itself also to the fact that the social landscape of slavery in Louisiana was not dissimilar to what it was uh, in Haiti. Uh, you had black people um on plantations who were empowered within the system, uh, who had access to information, who had access to some kind of education, who could take leadership roles. You had sort of um, many of the factors that allowed the Haitian rebellion to both um, grow and ultimately be successful. And we, we asked Professor Baptist about exactly about this. Um, what what were the, the stew of factors that led to the rebellion? Um, and, you know, in that way as well, how it connects back to uh, the situation in the United States. Just as the rebellion in, in Saint-Domingue, just as the rebels had planned there, uh, the plan seems to have been in Louisiana in 1811 to gather as much force as possible uh, and march as quickly as possible on the colonial capital, which in this case was New Orleans. And it was very simple. Uh, you get all of the, um, uh, the sort of non-commissioned officers of slavery, right? The sergeants and the corporals and so on. And these would be enslaved people uh, themselves. They would be uh, the people who are responsible uh, under the overseers for driving people minute to minute and hour to hour across the fields and labor, you know, whatever kind of labor they were doing that day in the sugar or cotton plantations. So these were enslaved people who had been given some authority in the system. These were people who had the ability to move around and communicate with each other. And in January 1811, just as it happened in, in 1791, they got together. Uh, and in fact, we, we know it was on the night of January 5th, and they planned a rebellion. And another, another fact, which is um, important, uh, is that the enslaved rebels plotted to do this, to launch this attack, uh, right at the moment when the local government was distracted. In 1791 in Saint-Domingue, the distraction had been over the, the French Revolution. You had royalists who were fighting Republicans in the streets of, uh, of uh, the various uh, towns and ports in Saint-Domingue. And in 1811 uh, in Louisiana, the 
territorial government was really focused on conflict or incipient conflict with Spain uh, over who would control Florida. So enslaved people seem to have been aware of this. They wait. Uh, they take the opportunity to strike when it seems like the attention of the enslavers is, is somewhere else. And for about two days in 1811, in January 1811, they're pretty successful. They get very close to New Orleans before they're ultimately defeated. And, and how, um, how exactly are they defeated? How do the slaveholders stop the rebellion? That is a great question. It gets us to what enslavers had learned. The mistake that enslavers made in San Domingue was they, uh, they were never able to unite uh, against this rebellion. Even after uh, 1791, uh, what you see is the Spanish in the eastern part of the island uh, were fighting against the French in the western part of the island. The French were fighting against each other because of the revolution. The British came in and tried to grab what they could. And instead, what you see is that the whites in Louisiana, whether they're ethnically French, ethnically Anglo, ethnically Spanish, they unite with each other to suppress the rebellion. And in addition to that, the U.S. federal government intervenes, uh, and, and that enables enslavers to quickly concentrate so much force that they're able to squash the rebellion, uh, which by that point is about 500 rebels strong and uh, is, as I said, right on the outskirts of New Orleans. Now, this is what you see when, when you look at the history of the United States and you say, why weren't there more slave rebellions? It's partly because there wasn't the same kind of numerical imbalance that you see in the history of San Domingue and a lot of the Caribbean islands like Jamaica in the 1760s, where literally 90% of the island's population will be enslaved Africans. In the South, there's only three states in 1860 where you have a black majority, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina, and these are very narrow majorities. But also, the U.S. federal government is always ready to intervene on the side uh, of the planters, of the enslavers, and of Southern whites in general. When it comes to suppressing slave rebellion, you don't have this, this opportunity to pit those uh, groups of whites against each other. So I think these reminders of the difference between the situation in Haiti and the situation in the United States are important because, you know, one of the things about the Charles Delon story that is sort of hard for us to process looking back at it is the ambition of his plan or the plan that he came up with along with his co-conspirators, which was to take New Orleans <laughs> and hold it as, you know, a place from which they could administrate a, a large-scale rebellion. And that seems misguided <laughs> to us, I guess, looking back, um, you know, knowing the forces they had arrayed against them. But then again, there was Haiti. Right. There is this real example, this real recent example of a successful large scale slave rebellion. So why wouldn't you give it a shot, especially in a place where um, you you have the numbers? You probably could create the will. So why not go for it? Right. And I think it also helps explain the the sheer um I guess the word I'm looking for is is viciousness of the reprisal, the the yes. awareness on part of slaveholders that in fact, this was a live possibility in places like Louisiana and places like Mississippi. Yes. And speaking of the sort of the ways that slaveholders learned new ways of repression coming off of these revolts and revolt scares, you asked Ed a really good question about the lessons that slaveholders might have learned from both the incidents and the plans that they uncovered for revolts. So let's listen to that. One thing I'm, uh, I'm curious about 
is how much fear of uh, a Haiti situation happening in the South, how much did that influence other aspects of the slave system? Did it influence sort of laws about literacy, slave literacy? Did it influence um, you know, the systems of, of tracking slaves uh, as they move between plantations? Like, did it become the psychological fuel for sort of like the, the police state aspects of American slavery? I think that the police state aspects are um, present in U.S. slavery long before there's the United States, but uh, the actual deployment of some of the, the capacities of that police state is episodic and uh, tends to be reactive in many cases. So yeah, certainly after 1791, I think you see an upsurge in concern about rebellion. Now, I, I know that after uh, 1811, uh, after Nat Turner in 1831, you know, after these, these large outbreaks, uh, what you see is a, a new intensity of policing. So you have uh, much greater efforts to get white men to actually participate in the patrol system, which is essentially a whole bunch of George Zimmermans riding around the various neighborhoods of the South every night uh, and, and tracking down any African-Americans who are moving around after dark outside of one property between properties and, and doing you know whatever they want to them in some cases. But certainly they're supposed to keep down the possibility that you're going to have uh, what had happened in, in uh, Louisiana in, on January 5th, uh, 1811, where you have this group of people who get together and plot a rebellion. So one of the most interesting takeaways from the half has never been told, which is Ed's book, for me was this idea that slaveholders were adaptive, um, that they were able to figure out new ways to make the system work better for them based on what had been going on. There's a couple of sentences in his book about the importance of understanding that. So he writes, by reputation, slaveholders were stubborn traditionalists who forgot nothing and learned nothing. In reality, they continued to learn and adapt to promote their own interests. Right. And this, I mean, this makes total sense. The slaveholders, maybe in the Old South, in, in Virginia and in North Carolina and in Charleston, the coastal regions, may have been more hidebound and reactionary. I mean, they're all reactionary, but yeah. reactionary within the context of being slaveholders. Um, but the, the men who traveled out west, who traveled out to Louisiana and to Mississippi, who went to the frontier of slavery, they were entrepreneurial. They were trying to uh, start sort of a new slave economy in this newly acquired land of the United States. And so almost by definition, these are, these are men who are very adaptable, um, very able to respond to circumstances, um, very able to maximize uh, whatever advantages they had. And they were, you know, Given their eventual wealth and and prosperity and political power, it, one possible analog for the kinds of people they were would be our Silicon Valley huh. uh, industrialist <laughs> um, people who went out west to make a fortune in one of the growth areas of their economy. Completely. I mean, this was the going thing, the next thing to do to make a bunch of money, because the land in you know the land in Virginia and the Upper South was getting tired out. You couldn't make as much that way. Right. We're going to take another quick break now, but stay with us. When we get back, we're going to hear the story of an apocalyptic slave revolt that frightened countless white Southerners and also only existed in their imaginations.
If you want to write to Rebecca and me about this episode, you can send us an email at historyacademy at slate.com. And listeners will know we've also launched a private Facebook group just for Academy members. You can find that group at facebook.com slash groups slash History Academy. You can read an excerpt from Edward Baptist's book, The Half Has Never Been Told, as part of the Slate Academy. Find the link in our show notes or at slate.com slash academy. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please consider joining Slate Plus. Slate Plus members help to support projects like this series, and they get benefits like ad-free podcasts and bonus episodes. In fact, Slate Plus members even get two additional episodes of this very podcast series. To listen to those and support Slate, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash academy. And we're back. I'm Rebecca Onion. And I'm Jamel Bowie. In the first part of today's podcast, we talked about an unsuccessful slave rebellion in Louisiana in 1811 and how it ratcheted up the already outsized fears of rebellion among Southern whites. Um, We're now going to turn to a story that suggests that these fears just continued to swell in the decades that followed until they became uh, kind of insane. Uh, from from insane to worse, maybe. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, right. Broader context, it's yeah. all insane, but it became more insane. So this next story uh, takes place in the 1830s. So we're flashing forward a little bit. Um, and it centers on a young man from Georgia who was named Virgil Stewart. So Virgil set out to get a piece of the action on the frontier of western Tennessee, where there was a lot of fresh land being taken from Native Americans who had been living there and had been removed. Um And so we read about Stewart's story in a book called Flush Times and Fever Dreams, A Story of Capitalism and Slavery in the Age of Jackson. And that book is by Joshua Rothman, who's a historian at the University of Alabama. Um, And I sort of stayed up late reading it in a way that I did not expect to do (laughs) when I read it. It's an excellent sort of fast-moving story. So Dr. Rothman joined us on the phone to tell us a little more about this guy, Virgil Stewart. He tries making a go of it as a cotton farmer, it seems. He, he doesn't really do that well at it. Um, it's more work than he anticipated. He really doesn't have a whole lot of money to get off the ground. So he's kind of sort of fishing around for things to do. And one thing that he, he realizes about the frontier is that it's not really as wide open as the stories you hear back in the East would make you believe. It really is a place where men who already have money, men who already have power, um, accumulate more of those things to themselves than most people do. And so what he tries to do is sort of insinuate himself with those people, thinking that being buddies with them can only do good things for you. So hanging around these rich guys in 1835, one of them tells Stuart about a local man named John Merle. Now, the thing to know about this period and and sort of the entire period is that people ran scams to try to steal slaves, like you would run a scam to try to steal someone's, I don't know, social security check. This rich guy talking to Stuart thinks Merle is one of those scammers. Uh, And here's how the scam would work. The scammer, Merle, would tell the enslaved person he's going to set them free. And instead of setting them free, he kidnaps them and then sells them to someone else. The rich slave owner uh, who suspects Merle of stealing some of his slaves, he sends his son out to find him, to to find this, um, you know, this thief. He asked Virgil Stewart, he's like, you know, this could be kind of dangerous. Would you mind going with my son and sort of trying to basically catch this guy? And Stewart, who, like I said, is trying to become buddies with these wealthy men, says, sure, 
you know, I, I basically, he's like, I got nothing else to do. I'll be happy to do you a favor. And so he goes out and he's going to meet this guy's son. The guy's son never shows up where they're supposed to meet. So Stewart's like, well, I'll just go after him myself. And he goes and he meets up with John Merle. He basically meets him on the road, introduces himself, pretends he's a stranger, and basically kind of sweet talks the guy. And Merle says, all right, well, why don't you come with me? You know, I'm, I'm going across the Mississippi River here into Arkansas. You know, why don't, you know, we'll have a good time. You know, we'll meet some ladies. We'll steal some horses. It'll be a blast. Um, and Stewart basically goes with him. He travels with him for about two weeks. Um, he comes back. He reports back to the planter that, um, you know, I, I saw your slaves. He's definitely stole them. And they go and they arrest John Merle. So that's how the story gets started, right? But then, over the course of time, Stewart starts making the story about what happened when they were on this trip bigger and bigger and crazier. And he starts saying, and he, he starts sort of elaborating this at John Merle's trial, but he basically kind of plays it out and keeps telling the story over and over and over again. He tells it at trial, then he tells it to some guys in the neighborhood, then he decides he's going to write a pamphlet about it. And basically, as the story goes on, instead of it just being, yeah, you know, I rode with this criminal and, you know, I, I, I met some of his buddies and, you know, they steal slaves and they have this kind of ring out in the Arkansas Territory. He starts telling a story about how John Merle is, is basically a master criminal. He runs this criminal syndicate. They have a thousand white men scattered all over the South. And what their big plan is, is they're going to launch a slave insurrection. They're going to start going in and trying to entice slaves to run away. And instead, what they're going to do is they're going to entice slaves all over the South to rise up all at once. They're going to burn all the cities down, and then Merle and his men are going to rob all the banks and rip off all the plantations while the insurrection is going on. Pick through the ashes, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we'll take advantage of the chaos more yeah. than anything else. <laughs> um, yeah. I just, I just, I, I laugh just because it sounds like the plot of a supervillain. It's a crazy story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and when he starts telling the story, the thing about it is that where he lives in West Tennessee. The people who knew this guy, they hear him telling this story, and they're like, this is bananas. There is no way that this is true. But in other parts of the South, as he decides he's going to publish this as a book, which he probably does at least in part for the money, um, he does in part because he's really angry that he doesn't seem to get the sort of respect and the kind of accolades that he thinks he deserves for having caught this guy in the first place. He starts sort of going around different parts of the South selling this book. And there are parts of the South in the early 1830s that are even more fragile and more kind of unsettled than West Tennessee, where rumors about a giant slave insurrection are going to send people into a tizzy. They're going to freak out. They're going to panic. And one place in particular that really gets set off is in Madison County, Mississippi which is about 200 miles from where he is in West Tennessee. And a number of people in Madison County, they thought they'd heard some slaves kind of whispering about some things. They thought, well, maybe they're plotting something. Maybe we need to pay attention to it. And through a variety of reasons, um, they begin to connect this kind of whisper campaign that they think they hear among some slaves to Virgil Stewart's pamphlet. And next thing you know, it becomes just mass hysteria. 
So the immediate question here is what exactly is inspiring this Tabaro Rothmanstrom, this mass hysteria, this sort of deep-seated fear that a plot like this, which, as we said, sounds insane, um, would even be possible or plausible? So four years before is the Nat Turner Rebellion in Southampton County, Virginia. And this had a major impact on people's um, slaveholders' mentalities in Virginia, um, and then in Mississippi, you have an even more, what might have looked to white slaveholders to be an even more volatile situation, which is a frontier where the people who live there the longest have only lived there, you know, between five and 10 years. And so um, white people don't really know each other. And then also the white people who are there feel outnumbered and anxious about the number of enslaved people that they've brought with them. Enslaved people are being brought onto the cotton frontier in massive numbers. Um, they're being brought in either by slave traders and therefore are unknown to planters. Um, there's, there's not a lot of time to kind of develop any kind of relationship between, you know, masters and slaves. Um, slaves come to outnumber white people in some places pretty substantially. I mean, in this part of Mississippi, um, you know, slaves come to outnumber white people by about three to one. Um, within a very short period of time, the, the, the ratio of white to black gets flipped totally upside down very, very quickly. And, you know, if they're not being brought by slave traders, you're, they're being brought by slaveholders from, you know, one plantation to another plantation, but they're being yanked out of where they came from, right? They're either being taken from Virginia or the Carolinas, sometimes Georgia. And, you know, you pick up and you go, you leave your family behind, you leave your community behind, you leave everything behind. You're plunked down in the middle of frontier Mississippi where there's, there's nothing really, there's nothing but forests. Um, and then you're worked unbelievably hard. Um, the work, not just in planting and picking cotton, but you have to remember, you have to clear a field in order to have a cotton field in the first place. So you're, you're, you know, you're cutting down trees, you're tearing out stumps, you're making fields flat. Um, it's brutal, brutal labor. And it's, the, the regime is designed to do nothing but extract maximum labor as quickly as humanly possible. What is so interesting about Rothman's discussion here um, is how he's talking about what I think to most people is a familiar image, um, a plantation, and he's talking about it in terms of a slave labor camp um, where brutal labor happens, where people are uh, worked nearly to death um, doing incredibly hard work. Uh, and, you know, I think it's interesting and I like it in part because I think it puts the reality to the fore that um, plantations were actually slave labor camps. That's what happened at them. That that's what their purpose was. You know, Ed Baptist used that term slave labor camp to describe plantations in his book. Um, and not just the plantations in Mississippi that we're talking about now, um, but also the more established plantations in the upper South. Um, and it really flipped the script for me in a lot of ways to think about it that way. Um, you know, I feel like the usual image of pioneering is very like Little House on the Prairie, <laughs> sort right. of. Um, everyone's working together. It's all about self-sufficiency, and there's like an authenticity to it in some way. Um, and then this story is just horrible, <laughs> um, you know, forced pioneering, basically. And so it really changed my perspective, not only on what it means to be a plantation, but also on what it means to be a frontier. That's right. And the same for me as well. So let's go back to 1835 in Mississippi and hear a little bit more from Josh Rothman about how the Virgil Stewart story caught fire. The rumors start to spread 
sort of late June. They get it in their minds that the insurrection is going to happen on the 4th of July, even though Stewart said it was going to happen at Christmas, but they get it in their minds. It's going to start earlier than that. It's going to start right away. And so because they're so afraid that this is going to happen immediately, they feel like the only way that they can prevent it from happening is to get as much information about the plot as quickly as possible. And so what they start to do essentially is torture people. Uh, they round up the slaves that they thought they'd heard whispering about the insurrection. They start beating them. They start whipping them. They start saying, look, we know this is going to happen. Tell us about Virgil Stewart. Tell us about John Murrow. We know that you're involved with his men. And essentially, as often happens when men get tortured, is they will say whatever it takes to stop them from torturing them. And so enslaved people start implicating other enslaved people. Those people then get beaten and whipped in order to extract information from them. And essentially what happens is this, this idea that comes from white people is then extracted from black people. And it, it's basically a, a kind of plot that I think is mostly the invention of the white imagination. And what starts to happen is that enslaved people start getting executed uh, for being part of this plot. They start implicating white people as well, right? Because ultimately the story here isn't that the slaves are going to rebel. That's only part of the story. The story is that there are white men among us who are inciting slaves to rebel. And so the attention falls on a, on a few white men in particular who are kind of transient, kind of you know, their their commitment to slavery for various reasons, depending on the person, are, are a little bit questionable. Um, and so then they start getting tortured. Some of them start getting hanged. And before you know it, over the course of about a week and a half in the middle of July, there's hysteria in Madison County in particular, but then that starts to spread beyond Madison County. It starts to spread down into Hines County, where the, where the capital of Mississippi is. It starts to spread to all the counties up and down the Mississippi River. Bits and pieces of it start to spread to other states. I've seen it um, as far flung as Florida, um, as far away as Virginia. People become convinced that John Merle and his men are everywhere. They're going to strike at any time, and the only way to stop it is to figure out who's involved, and if you have to kill them, you kill them. So the society out in Mississippi wasn't established enough to have a really strong court system, or at least the the landowners who were worried about this uh, insurrection, supposed insurrection, didn't trust the court system that there was. So they created these tribunals, which were sort of groups of wealthy men, um, landowners, who sort of took the power into their own hands to try the people who were accused of participation in this phantom insurrection. Um, and they would deputize people to go riding out and looking for suspects. Um, and Josh compared them to witch trials or called them witch trials in part because in some cases, the whole system ended up turning on the very wealthy landowners who were sort of instigating the trials. So there's one guy, for example, who among the first slaves who is suspected of being involved in this, um, his owner is a man named Rule Blake. And Rule Blake, they haul this guy's slave into this tribunal. It's almost even before the tribunal is formed. They start beating him. And Rule Blake is like, you guys got to stop. If anybody else touches my slave, we're going to have problems, right? Now, now, you could do this. It's your property, right? You can do this. You don't want to see people beating your property. So then they say, okay, well, then you beat him because hmm. we're going to get this information one way or the other. 
And Rule Blake's like, okay, I'll do it then. But they think he's not beating him hard enough, right? He's not really trying. He's just going through the show of it. And so then they start to think, hmm, maybe he's not just trying to protect his property. Maybe he knows something. And so then they start coercing his slave to, um, to basically snitch on his master, and then his master gets implicated. So you could be a slaveholder and still get in trouble here. This story also reminds me of sort of behavior in very authoritarian um, police states or totalitarian states, right? Where there, yeah. where the the populace itself is engaged in trying to police the the structure of the society, right? Yeah. Um, and I think this gets to what scholars are trying to communicate a bit when they say that the slave South wasn't just a society with slaves; it was a slave society. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't yeah. enough for you just to own slaves or to be okay with the institution or kind of just to go along go along your way. You had to be all in and invested um, completely in the society and the institution. It was yeah. it was a total commitment, almost like um, almost like Project Mayhem and Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. So we have this mass hysteria, tribunals, people being executed, uh, suspicion. How did it all wind down? Um, well, what what happened, as these things often do, is that they got even more out of control, and these posses began attacking influential people. And that's when, I guess, the big boy stepped in, the governor stepped <laughs> in, um, uh-huh. and and tried to wrap this thing up, tried to, to put an end to it. Yeah. And while all this was going on, the real Morel was in prison, kind of incapable of doing anything, let alone orchestrating this fantastic conspiracy. That's right. Um, he was dying of tuberculosis, more or less. Yes, and he was released early because of that, um, and he ended up dying before he turned 30. And Stewart kind of got a, a bunch of approbation for a while from the story um, and was, you know, welcomed town to town as the guy who exposed this grand conspiracy, but then handled his money really poorly and, and just sort of died a pauper. As we were finishing up our conversation with uh, Rothman, we, we actually sort of asked him to step back from particular personalities like Stuart and Merle and, and talk a bit about sort of the broader context for this panic. What was it about the 1830s in particular? And, you know, beyond the experience of the Nat Turner revolt, what was it about the period that this would take hold and kind of grab the public's imagination in a really violent way? So there is a kind of big picture thing, and then there's the sort of small picture of the frontier, right? The, the big picture, obviously, is the, the emergence of the abolitionist movement, right? That really starts to come into its fore in the 1830s, right? The Liberators founded in 1831. The Anti-Slavery Society founded in 1833. The Postal Campaign is 1835. All of a sudden, there are, you know, growing numbers of very loud, immediatist abolitionists not colonizationists, people who are like, slavery is immoral, it's a sin, it ought to end today. Um, And as those people get louder, there is a kind of siege mentality that takes hold among white Southerners. All of a sudden, the idea that you could be a white person and maybe say out loud that you think slavery isn't for the best, maybe you even think slavery is wrong, Um, the South ought to maybe abolish slavery, even saying that, would get you in trouble by the middle of the 1830s. And that only gets worse as time goes on. Um, So there's a kind of big sort of 
political context for this, there's a kind of ideological war that begins to rage, basically a, a propaganda war between anti- and pro-slavery forces in the United States. So that, that's one thing that kind of limits the scope of acceptable debate among white people. Um, so that is definitely one thing that's going on. But I actually think in Mississippi, there's something more kind of material-based and more specific than that. And that's the idea that um, this is a place where law and order is very ill-formed, settlement is very new. We are white men who are surrounded by growing numbers of black men who we do not know. We need to all be on the same team if we're going to get this done. Right. And, and it's both an individual and collective enterprise. Right. There's individual plantations. But, you know, one an insurrection on one plantation isn't just going to stay on that plantation. And so the idea here on the frontier in particular is that white men really need to be united. It's an economic imperative and, and it's a question of personal safety. Um, and so there's I think that takes the kind of the violence that normally comes with slavery and really takes it up to a whole other level. Um, it becomes absolutely imperative that slaves do what they are told and that all white men are involved in making sure that they do exactly that. I was curious, Jamal, since we started the episode off talking about um, revolts in general and sort of the way that a bunch of them have fallen out of our understanding of the history of slavery, um, how did the story both of Charles Salon and the story of the Morrell and Stewart panic changed your understanding of what it meant to start a revolt. How do you think differently about revolts and rebellions after hearing about this? I think it's easier for me to understand why enslaved people wouldn't revolt, right? Revolt isn't just risking your life, it's risking the lives of sort of everyone around you. Um, yeah. It could easily spiral into mass reprisals that could affect your friends, could affect your family, could affect this community that you've built. There's a small chance that any revolt would be successful and a pretty good chance that it's going to end in disaster and probably death for you and those around you. So why would you why would you try it? The, the best option for trying to get away or trying to escape um, is actual running away. Um, that way, if you get captured, it's really only on you. Right. And that I mean, that's something that, you know, if I'm thinking about the history of gender in slavery, there's a lot of evidence that women didn't really run, couldn't run away as much because they had children, um, or they had older people they were supposed to be taken care of. But, you know, hearing about these sort of more dramatic revolts, both the real one in Louisiana and the fake one in Mississippi, um, as I was sort of, we were working on this episode, I was reading some really amazing work by a historian named Stephanie Camp, and her book is called Closer to Freedom. And the book is about what she calls everyday resistance. And this is sort of acts that people carried out on plantations. So it's things like not running away permanently, but running away for a night or, you know, being slow at work or, um, you know, stealing small things. So there's sort of a range of things that you could do that would not be like wielding a knife, basically. Right. There were plenty of other ways to resist, and these stories make it clear why enslaved people would opt for those as opposed to violent resistance. And, and I'll, I'll kind of add as well um, that, you know, for as much as these stories make it easier to understand why enslaved people wouldn't um, revolt or, or engage in violent resistance, it's, it's really not that difficult if you think in kind of a broader sense um, why they wouldn't. I mean, 
Hmm. Humans can get habituated to a lot of different kinds of conditions. Um, Sadly, this is true. Yeah, this is this is very true. And so, if you think of the experience of an enslaved person in 1830, their their parents were probably enslaved. There's a good chance that their parents were enslaved too. This seems just to be the way and order of things. And even if you know what's wrong, um, it's not actually clear to you that there's anything you can do about it. And so, why risk it? With all of that, I think we are finished with this episode's conversation, but we are not finished on the frontier. Uh, We still have a lot more to talk about and explore about the outer edges of American slavery. The next episode, we're going to be talking about Charles Ball, who is a person who was sold several times and was sold basically because of the cotton, uh, the revolution in cotton planting that allowed people to make a lot of money. And so he's sort of another story that shows the effect the expansion and migration had on enslaved people's lives. You'll find that in our podcast feed in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, however, this is the History of American Slavery, a Slate Academy. My name is Jamel Bowie. And I'm Rebecca Onion. Thanks for listening. You can read an excerpt from Joshua Rothman's book, Flush Times and Fever Dreams, as part of the Slate Academy. Find the link in our show notes or at slate.com slash academy.